Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santos Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. On today's episode of Integrative Oncology Talk, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Eric Garland. Dr. Garland is the Distinguished Endowed Chair in Research and Professor and Associate Dean for Research in the University of Utah College of Social Work and the Director of the Center on Mindfulness and Integrative Health Intervention Development. He's also the Associate Director of Integrative Medicine in Support of Oncology and Survivorship at the Huntsman Cancer Institute. Dr. Garland is the developer of an innovative mindfulness-based intervention founded on insights derived from cognitive, affective, and neurobiological science called MORE. He's done extensive research in the field of mindfulness and cancer pain, and we will be speaking with him today about his research and about his program MORE. Hey, Eric, thanks so much for joining me today on Integrative Oncology Talk. Hi, Santosh. Thanks for having me. You know, you've you've been a, a real leader in the area of mindfulness and, and cancer-related pain. So let's get into it right now. First of all, tell us a little bit about where you are and, and what you do right now. Uh, actually, I do a whole lot of things. So um, to, to sum it up, uh, I'm, I'm a quite active clinical researcher, but I, I like to sort of brand what I do as clinical biobehavioral research. So I'm, I'm interested in, in testing, developing and testing mind-body interventions for chronic pain and also for opioid misuse and other addictive behaviors. And not only developing and testing the efficacy of these interventions, but also understanding the mechanisms by which these therapies produce their clinical effect. Awesome. I mean, obviously, this is a very important area right now. Uh, for all of us. So let's start right there. Um, I want to first talk about pain. And, you know, pain is, is as I understand it, the most common symptom for, uh, for people who have been affected by cancer. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what the various causes of, of cancer-related pain are and how much of this really can be affected by control of the mind? Great question. Well, it's it's actually interesting to talk about this in relation to my non-cancer pain work. Uh, I do a lot of research on on chronic pain and a lot of treatment of patients with chronic non-cancer pain. So I think what what's interesting about you know this distinction is that in the case of cancer, there's typically there's some sort of nociceptive event happening. In other words, there's some sort of actual damage to the body whether it's damage, uh, you know, whether it's, it's, it's the cancerous lesion itself or whether it's damage to the body due to radiation or surgical treatment. 
or whether it's um, it's it's the associated other other pathological conditions. And this is kind of distinct from, for example, uh, many cases of non-specific low back pain that I deal with in, in the other side of my work, where there's there's no observable pathology in the body that's causing the damage signal to get relayed to the brain. So on the one hand, you might think, well, if in the case of cancer pain, there's this, there's this, something has caused harm to, to the tissues of the body, whether it's the cancer or, or the side effects of cancer treatment, you might think that the, that type of pain is less, uh, is less changeable by mind-body therapies. But in fact, I, I, I would argue that that is not the case and that regardless of the, regardless of the, of the nociceptive input, in other words, regardless of, of the source of the pain, mind-body techniques can, can pretty powerfully change the experience of pain. And that, is, that, that has a lot to do with um, you know, the way that pain is, is generated by the brain itself. So I'd like to I like to simply say that all pain is in the brain. And what I mean by that is this the the nerves are relaying the 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 signals of damage in the case of let's say uh somebody who has uh, you know a cancerous tumor pressing onto some nerves and that signal is relayed up the spine and into the brain where it it then is relayed in, in a structure called the thalamus, which we could think of as the gatekeeper of, of signals or information from the body, which then relays those signals out into the brain, into areas of the brain like the prefrontal cortex or areas of the brain like the amygdala and the limbic system. And it's, it's when this, this information about the condition of the body is relayed to these higher order cognitive and emotional parts of the brain that the brain decodes the sensations from the body into the experience of pain and that's 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 the key step right there because um you know we know for example that there can be no susception which is which is the scientific word for um, basically transmission of, of of the damage signal so there can be no susception without pain, and there can be pain without no susception. And that's pretty interesting. So no susception without pain, a good example of that is phantom limb pain. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, you're a patient, you're, I mean, you're a soldier in war, you, have your, you get your arm blasted off by, by an explosion. And sometimes those soldiers can feel pain in the fingers of the hand that no longer exists. So there's an example of, of pain without no susception. There's no, there's, there's no hand to even be damaged at that point, but you can still feel pain there. And you can also have uh, no susception without pain. And just to give another war example, that would be the example of, let's say you're, um, you're a soldier and you're fighting on the battlefield and you, and you start getting, your unit gets under attack and you've got to save your, your comrades, you got to save your brothers. And so you get, but you get shot, but you're too, you're too busy to feel pain. You've got to keep your, your you've got to keep your, your, your brothers alive. And so there's many stories of, of soldiers 
who've taken grievous wounds on the battlefield and they continue to fight because their mind is so focused in that moment and so absorbed on, on the meaningful goal that they don't even notice the sensations from the body. So um, I, I, I say all that, and this, this is actually an example that I use clinically with patients so that they can understand uh, how the mind could affect something like pain in the context of cancer. I think it illustrates it pretty well because it, what it all boils down to is that what happens in our heads is what really in large part determines our experience of pain. It's in that step. It's in that step where the brain is decoding the signals from the body uh, into the conscious experience of pain. That's the place where mind-body interventions can really have a have a powerful impact. And in your experience, I mean, is this something that you know, if you're already in pain uh, and you haven't developed this skill, right? Is it something that comes naturally, or is it something that some people are are you know, have an easier time learning than others. Because I would imagine if you have cancer or you're in pain, it might feel overwhelming to say, okay, I'm going to teach you this new skill of managing your pain with mindfulness. What's been your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, great. That's a great point. And I mean, there's a huge, like a huge range of, of how easily people kind of take to this naturally. And I think a lot of people are using mindfulness type of attitudes and techniques to cope with pain, even without training. Um, you know, some people I think are just naturally better at it than others. But, um, in my experience, people, even, even people who who've never been exposed to these skills before cancer can learn them during the experience of cancer and, and can benefit from them. It, but, but, you know, the, what, what really I think differs is how quickly people pick it up. You know, some people, and this is actually amazing. I've, I've observed this <clears throat> in multiple research studies that I've done uh, where we've, we've had a lot of therapists delivering mindfulness techniques for people with chronic pain. And we, in, in those studies, we typically deliver uh, mindfulness in a group therapy format. So we're treating, let's say, 10 people at the same time. And what's amazing is that in that very first session, there are some people in that group who immediately achieve profound pain relief. Wow. There are, there are actually some people in that, in, let's say out of the 10 people, oftentimes there'll be one or two who in the very first time they practice mindfulness will achieve, and this sounds wild, but I'm telling the truth, they will achieve complete pain relief. Like let's say a set, if their pain was a seven out of 10 when they came into the group, and it is a zero at right after they get done practicing mindfulness. Are now, there certain, there are, but then there are other people in the group who, when they do this in the first session, they don't get it. They don't feel any relief at all. And it is may, there any way to, is there any way to predict that? Like, is there certain types of pain that uh, are more susceptible to mindfulness versus others? That's a great question. And scientifically, I don't think we know the answer. I've never seen any data on it. Have you? No. Yeah. No, um, but that it's it's fascinating to me. Um, so, tell us a little bit about the difference between you know the use of opioids. So we'll get into this, and I know a lot of your research is around reducing opioids and how we can use mindfulness for 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 pain. Tell us a little bit about how opioids are used and and what your knowledge is about the overuse of opioids and you know how that's affecting people now. 
Yeah, I mean, that's been the bulk of my work for the past 10 years is, is studying mindfulness and in particular, a, a very specific mindfulness-based therapy that I developed called Mindfulness-Oriented Recovery Enhancement, or MORE is the acronym, uh, as a treatment for opioid misuse. So I, I've done a lot of work in this area, both understanding sort of the basic science of opioid misuse, and then also understanding how mindfulness-oriented recovery enhancement can, can treat that problem. You know, I, I think one of the basic points for people to understand that that is really important is, first of all, is that many people take opioids just, just as prescribed by their physician. You know, the doctor says, I want you to take 50 morphine milligram equivalents a day, and that's what they do, and they stick with it, and they're not misusers, and they're not addicts. And, and certainly in the case of cancer patients, there's a lot of people in that category who are prescribed opioids by their physician. They're taking it legitimately and they may have some physical dependence, but they're not addicted to the substance. But then there are other people who start to misuse opioids. And, and as they begin to misuse opioids, some of, some of these people actually start to become more dependent and ultimately addicted on the opioid and could even develop an opioid use disorder. And we know there's a huge crisis of this in our country right now. So, I mean, can I, can I ask a question? Because I've always been taught, you know, as somebody who prescribes opioids uh, relatively frequently, yeah. you know, the, teach, the teaching is always that, well, in cancer patients, those who require opioid use, that the risk of dependency is, is less. And yeah. so we, we usually get kind of comfortable prescribing opioids in this particular situation. Is that, is that not accurate or is there, is there still a certain percentage of patients who will get dependent? It's interesting you say that. Um, well, what, so, you know, we, we actually don't know a whole lot about, about this, about how, how prevalent opioid misuse and addiction is in people with cancer. Uh, but there was recently a paper that actually came out yesterday looking at national prevalence rates. And, and, it, and it looks like that the overall prevalence is about 3% in cancer patients. So it seems to be pretty low, although the, the, the methods they use to, to measure this may not be the best. And of course, you're also oftentimes relying on patient self-report and patients don't necessarily want to talk about this issue or admit it. Um, I mean, um, do you have a sense also of how many patients, you know, sell opioids or give them to loved ones or, or you know, how, how much this con this contributes to societal misuse of opioids? Yeah, I, I really don't know. I can't answer that question. But what I, what I will say is that I think it's really interesting to try to understand why some patients can take opioids just as prescribed by their physician and other patients start to escalate their opioid use and begin to misuse the drug. And I've studied that pretty, um, pretty extensively using neuroscience. And one of the really interesting findings from this work that I've done is that I can tell you what does not discriminate people from who take opioids as prescribed from people who misuse opioids. And that is physical pain severity in, in my data sets. And then my data sets are getting pretty large. Uh, the, the physical pain, the pain severity is about the same between people who are taking opioids as prescribed by their doctor and between people who are starting to misuse opioids. What, what really distinguishes these two groups 
is emotional pain and the use of opioids to alleviate emotional pain. Hmm. That that's a really that's a really distinguishing feature and and there's actually two dimensions to that and this relates to my mindfulness therapy so I think it's worth talking about. So the first is using opioids to reduce negative emotions, anxiety, depression, anger. And the other is using opioids to increase positive emotions. And those two things are actually not the same. So the presence of negative emotions doesn't necessarily mean an absence of positive emotions. And scientifically, it's important to measure these things separately. And, and what I found, there's a, particular, a particularly um, problematic pattern underlying opioid misuse, and that is the use of opioids to increase positive emotions, to make yourself feel better. And of course, that, that's the, the inability to experience positive emotions, that's called anhedonia, and that's a key feature of depression. And of course, there's a lot of depression in cancer, which mm-hmm. makes sense. So people, as they become, as they become more anhedonic, they're less able to, to get a sense of, of happiness or joy or meaning or purpose in life out of the things that used to give them pleasure, used to give them a sense of joy. Uh, opioid misusers, with people with chronic pain who misuse opioids, have higher levels of anhedonia than people who take opioids as prescribed and people who don't take opioids. And that, that deficit seems to be uh, one of the things that really gets people hooked in this downward spiral where they become more and more dependent on the opioid just to feel okay. So they take, they, they're t- trying to take opioids to lift up their mood. And there are changes that happen in the brain that make the brain actually over time less sensitive to natural pleasure. So it creates more of this lack of positive mood, more of this anhedonia, so the person is, becomes desperate, so they try taking even more higher doses of the drug to feel okay, and it's an ever-losing battle. So they just get stuck in this downward spiral. And at the same time, there are changes in the brain that cause increased sensitivity, distress, and pain as a person uses opioids and misuses opioids chronically over time. It actually causes neuroplastic changes in the brain that in some patients can make people more sensitive to physical pain as well. So they become more sensitive to physical pain. They become more sensitive to emotional pain and they become less able to extract a healthy sense of pleasure, meaning, uh, and joy in life. And that, that pushes them to take higher and higher doses of the drug just to feel okay. And I call that the downward spiral. When you say misuse, just to be clear, for, for you, that means that somebody's taking it outside of the prescription. Or is yeah. there another definition for misuse? It's, it's a pretty broad category, but that it includes things like taking a higher dose than, than your doctor prescribed. It also includes taking opioids for reasons other than pain. So, for example, taking opioids uh, to help you to sleep or taking opioids when you're upset to calm you, calm you down. And it also includes taking opioids to actually to create euphoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then there's the diversion issue of actually selling your medication or, or giving it to other people. So it's, it's kind of a big umbrella term. Well, I mean, you've, you've highlighted 
kind of the complex nature of pain in, in cancer patients and that, you know, many times we don't adequately assess the situation and, you know, we're basically saying, okay, the pain is is probably from this tumor in this location, here's an opioid, you know, and, and let's see if you tolerate it. Obviously, there's a lot of desire to limit opioid use because of all the side effects that opioids, you know, carry with them. So let's talk a little bit about your therapy more. What does it stand for? And um, talk to us a little bit about what it what it is all about and what you found. Great, I'd love to. So MORE stands for Mindfulness-Oriented Recovery Enhancement. And MORE is a, is a, is a unique mindfulness-based approach that's designed to simultaneously address chronic pain, emotional distress, and opioid misuse. And what, what makes MORE unique is that it combines traditional mindfulness training techniques with some other techniques that don't show up in, in most mindfulness-based interventions. And specifically, we also, in addition to mindfulness, we provide training in two other skills. One is called reappraisal. And reappraisal is basically when we, when we reframe the meaning of, of a life stressor or reframe adversity as a source of meaning or psychological growth. So, so we teach skills in reappraisal, and we also teach skills in savoring. And savoring is when we focus our attention on a pleasant event in life, and we actually we use mindfulness to extract all the all the the joy and pleasure and meaning that we can out of that event by really paying attention to what is pleasing in terms of the sensory aspects of that event. So. Uh, it's it's beautiful, the, the way it looks, the beauty in its in its appearance, you know, beautiful sounds, beautiful smells, pleasing touch. But also, we we pay attention to how when we're having this this pleasant experience, we pay attention to how it affects our mind and our body. So how it how it evokes positive emotions, and the pleasant sensations that arise in the body when we're having this positive experience. So, for example, being going out on a walk and hearing birds chirping in the trees, seeing flowers growing out of the grass, feeling the breeze on a warm day, and focusing our attention on all of the, the, the pleasant aspects of that sensory experience, but then also becoming aware of how it is affecting our mind and body when we start to feel set, the feeling of contentment or maybe happiness, or maybe we have this thought, you know, even though life is stressful, there's still, it's still a beautiful world. And as we have that thought, really uh, absorbing the pleasure and the positive emotions that arise from that whole experience. So that's, so that's, Eric, that's a description. Eric, of the let me, let me just uh, ask you, because there's going to be people listening who <clears throat> understand this maybe better than I and, and people who are less familiar. So, you know, right now, when we think of mindfulness, you know, maybe people go to an MBSR class or they read a book on mindfulness. And a lot of it is about awareness, uh, building awareness and uh, understanding how uh, shifts in, in your attention or what you're thinking, how that's affecting you so that you can kind of gain some stability and understanding of what's causing some of your pain or distress, right? 
And then there's another thing that we often recommend, which is guided imagery, which is where uh, somebody might be telling you to think about something beautiful, etc. It sounds like what you've done and more is kind of combine some of the elements of this. Is that correct? Or is that a way of Am I oversimplifying it? Well, to an extent, but but guided imagery is is imagining something that isn't there, and savoring mm-hmm. is focusing on what is there that is beautiful and good. So it's it's actually drawing attention to a present experience in 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 your current reality that is pleasing, uh, that is positive, and and more is more is distinct from MBSR because as I said, you know MBSR does not include reappraisal techniques or savoring techniques. But those are both really important given what I just told you about opioid misuse and chronic pain. And this notion that uh, one of the key deficits that, that people face is, is the inability to regulate negative and positive emotions. And that's one of the things that drives the downward spiral of opioid misuse. So I, I really, I developed more using, an, using basic science findings, uh, you know, from neuroscience to really inform what, what intervention, what, what techniques should be in this intervention. So reappraisal is, is a really powerful way of changing our response to negative events in life. And, you know, and cancer patients do this all the time. In fact, when I started doing clinical work with cancer patients, it was the thing that completely blew me away was how resilient so many people with cancer are when they, they face this incredible stressor. And, and, and I would have patients come and tell me things like, I'm actually glad that I got cancer because it, it helped me to realize what was important in life. It made me realize that what really matters is the love of my family. I stopped worrying about my career so much. I, 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 I you know, I stopped worrying about uh, what I used to think was important, and now I know it's really important, is just getting time to you know spend time with my grandkids. Mm-hmm. Um, that that blew me away that people could make such a powerful reframe of something that is so tragic and devastating to get a get a, a serious cancer diagnosis and be able to see that as actually a gift. I have the same experience. Yeah, I, it's amazing what people are are able to you know be brave about and you know, the resilience. I totally agree. So let's talk a little bit about the the research that you've done with more and specifically with pain and, and opioid use as well. Yeah. Great. Well, so I, I've been studying more for the past 10 years uh, as a treatment for chronic pain and opioid misuse. And I've conducted a number of NIH funded clinical trials over those 10 years. And I mean, if I'm gonna, if I'm just gonna shortcut it all, the 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 take-home message is that more works. But specifically, uh, what we've shown in in two stage two randomized controlled trials, and now a new stage three randomized controlled trial funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse that that just finished up, is that more significantly decreases pain severity. It significantly decreases pain-related interference, so uh, people are less impaired by their chronic pain over time, and it significantly decreases opioid misuse, and opio- and, and people take lower doses of opioids, uh, and, this, and we followed people out now nine months after the end of, of the treatment, so more is an eight-week 
typically delivered as an eight-week group therapy. And not only do we find that eight weeks of more produces these therapeutic effects, but that they last for a long time after the end of, of the treatment, as, as long as nine months. And I've done a whole, a whole lot of psychophysiological research to try to understand the therapeutic mechanisms of more. So how is more producing these effects? And there are some, there are some pretty interesting patterns emerging from, uh, from that work. So one of those, one of the most key findings is, is that savoring is really important in terms of reducing opioid craving and opioid misuse. So what we found is that more actually, when, when patients are treated with more, it actually starts to, rem, uh, to, to remediate the anhedonia by increasing physiological sensitivity to natural pleasure. So we, we measure this using some neuroscience kind of tasks. So we show people uh, photographs on the computer screen of smiling babies, beautiful mountains, lovers holding hands, that, that sort of thing. And we measure people's heart rate in response to the images. We measure brain activity using EEG in response to the images. And what we find is after eight training with eight weeks of more, patients' bodies become more physiologically responsive to natural pleasure. Their, their brains and their hearts become more physiologically responsive to natural pleasure. And what's amazing is that the more physiologically responsive their, their, their brains and bodies become to natural pleasure, the less they want opioids and the less they misuse opioids. So we actually find, we, we actually find that the effect of more on reducing craving and opioid misuse is associated with, and in some, in some studies mediated by this increased uh, responsivity to natural pleasure. So that's one interesting uh, finding. And another interesting finding with respect to pain, I'll, I'll give you two, is that more seems to be shifting the way people perceive pain. And that shift is one from more of an emotional way of experiencing pain to a pure sensory way of experiencing pain. So what we, what we do in more to help people cope with pain is we ask them to actually practice mindfulness to focus in on the pain sensations themselves and to break down the experience of pain into pure sensory components. So what I mean by that is instead of experiencing this terrible kind of angu anguish in your back, let's say, we ask people to zoom into that sensation and break it down into sensations of heat or tightness or tingling and then to notice, do those sensations have edges? Do they have a center? Are, they, are there spaces in between those sensations where there's either no pain sensation at all or potentially even pleasurable sensations right next to the painful ones? So that's, that's, that's the technique that we teach people uh, to do while they're practicing mindfulness. And what's amazing about it is that, first of all, people after eight weeks of training, people report that they're, they're better able to, at doing this. They can do it better. And that increases in this capacity to reinterpret pain as, as just pure sensory information, explain uh, the pain relief produced by more. So increases in this capacity to see pain, not as pain, but rather to see it as sensations of warmth or numbness 
that actually mediates the effect of more on reducing pain severity. So that's really fascinating. And there's, there's, and there's one other piece to this, which is, which is really pretty cool. And the experience of self-transcendence. So what we find is that um, as, pe- as, pe- as people learn how to practice mindfulness and get better over the eight weeks, some, some patients have pretty profound experiences that you might label spiritual experiences or even mystical experiences. So this during meditation, having the experience that you are transcending your limited sense of self and actually feeling more connected to the world around you, which could culminate in this experience of, of almost a sense of oneness with the world around you, that the separation between yourself and the world starts to dissolve away and you feel this connectedness. And people report people report this uh, as as they go through the more therapy, and they report it to be a very powerful healing experience. But what's interesting about that is that, again, from a statistical standpoint, increases in these experiences of self transcendence statistically explain in a significant way the pain pain relief that people achieve with more. And so we, you know, we're not only assessing this with questionnaires to try to get at this experience, but we're also using neuroscience. And actually, uh, I just had a new paper accepted for publication yesterday in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology, where we showed that uh, we we measured EEG while people were meditating after get, after getting treated with more versus a control condition, and we found that people who were, were treated with more, when they meditated, they were able to increase frontal midline theta brainwave activity. Uh, so uh, a certain brainwave frequency in, in, in basically the, the prefrontal cortex. But increases in that frontal theta while they meditated were associated with this experience of self-transcendence and this experience of of disillusion of of the boundary between the self and the world so as people got deeper into the meditative state and they started to experience this transcending of their of their self and the boundaries of their body theta brainwave activity increased more and that was associated with reduced opioid doses so the patients who were able to achieve the the greatest degree of this self-transcendent experience during meditation reflected in their brain activity, those patients were able to reduce their opioid doses the most. And can we, can we get a sense of the, the percentage of, of reduction, you know, just overall with more Yeah. and, and, and then, you know, I don't know if you distinguish between, uh, you know, quote unquote, acute or chronic pain. I don't know what the definition of each is, but, um, you know, what, how successful is more in, in each scenario? Okay, well, I can give you lots of different percentages. <laughs> so, in terms of an opioid dose reduction, uh, what we've seen so far is is something between, depending on the study, between twenty and thirty percent reduction in in morphine equivalents. What and now what's interesting about that is we're not asking people to reduce their dose, and doctors aren't pushing patients to reduce their dose. At, people are just choosing to, to, to reduce their dose by, you know, roughly 
a quarter or, th or a third on their own after getting this training. So that's pretty cool. It's pretty amazing. Uh, in terms of, of reductions in opioid misuse, we, we, we've just found, and, and this is hot off the presses, so this hasn't been published anywhere yet, but in my, in my latest big trial of more, which was involved 260 opioid treated chronic pain patients, and we followed them for nine months, we, we, we saw a 40% reduction in opioid misuse, which is just a massive effect. That's pretty, amazing. Thank you. Yeah, pretty excited about that. In terms of pain relief, uh, we have looked at acute pain reduction versus chronic pain reduction. So chronic the, the severity of chronic pain is reduced in a statistically significant degree, but it's not huge. It's about a 10% reduction over nine months. But the, the effect of more on, on how much pain is interfering with your life or impairing your life we observe a 25% reduction that goes out even as far as nine months after the end of treatment. And in terms of, in terms of acute pain reduction, and this we've studied uh, not, not just with more, but we've actually studied this with a single 15-minute session of mindfulness training using the, the, the more mindfulness meditation. And this is a study that we, we did in patients who are in the hospital uh, suffering from acute pain from you know anything that would cause people pain in the hospital. So this was you know stuff, broken bones, trauma, burns, childbirth, uh, chest pain from a heart attack, uh, cancer pain. You know the, the whole gam the whole gamut across all these conditions. This this was a study I conducted a couple of years ago and it involved 240 patients. About uh, we found that 15 minutes of mindfulness reduced acute pain by about 25%, which is really blew me away because we, we, this particular study, we did it in a, you know, busy, noisy hospital. And it wasn't in some, it wasn't in some calm, peaceful, integrative medicine center. This was in the people in their, in their hospital bed, you know, with the beeping of the machines and the nurses coming in and out. And we just, we sent a social worker in to do this brief 15 minute uh, mindfulness practice, and we 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 saw the this reduction, immediate reduction in pain by about twenty five percent. Now we don't know how long that lasts. We never we didn't study that, so you know maybe it lasts, maybe it only lasts ten minutes, maybe it lasts half an hour, maybe it lasts an hour. It could last longer. We don't know. But what I when I did that study, I thought to myself, why is why are we offering mindfulness everywhere? In the medical system where we're encountering pain if a simple 15-minute uh intervention could be so so helpful well that gets me to my next question is about translating this and implementing um how you know has has more kind of started spreading beyond your research in uh, university of utah and you know is it something that if you're in a cancer center for example that you can have a social worker train uh, in in uh, implementing more or a psychologist? I mean, how easy is it for uh, a, a program to adapt this? Great question. So yes, people are, are now using more outside of my local area and, and also studying more all over the world. Um, and, and I very much want it to be disseminated at this point. Um, so I, I, tra I, I, I train clinicians a couple times a year. I usually do about two 
two trainings. And in fact, I have one coming up on September 25th and September 26th. So I train physicians, I train nurses, I train psychologists, I train social workers, people with a, with a clinical background in more. Um, and it's, it's a two day training. And, and with that two day training and, and the more treatment manual. So the man, the, the therapeutic approach is actually written down. It's manualized. So you can kind of follow that like a, a cookbook almost. And then with, with the training two day training, I think that that can get somebody competent enough to, to do some good, to help, help some patients. And so there are clinicians and, and researchers using more all over the place. Uh, I'll just name a few Mount Sinai hospital in New York, <clears throat> Johns Hopkins, uh, medical university <clears throat> of South Carolina and Charleston, Philadelphia VA, and even got a group in Switzerland that's at University of Zurich that's starting to to use this approach. So it's it, it's starting to to spread out, and I certainly do want to see it disseminated, and and I want to teach clinicians how to how to use this technique and and import it into their own cancer centers and and in other medical settings. Yeah, it sounds like we should. Um, I, I want to ask you about some of your other research that you're doing. Um, you're doing some research at the VA on um, on co-occurring disorders with symptom clusters, including, you know, pain per prescription misuse, uh, psychosocial distress, and how that affects uh, patients with cancer. Can you talk to us a little bit more about about uh, this cluster effect of these symptoms. You were starting to talk about it with anhedonia and stuff, but specifically about your research that you're doing at the VA. Yeah, well, that that's also a study of more, um, and and so we're studying more as a treatment for veterans and, and active duty military uh, who have this co these complex comorbidities, um, and many of them do. Unfortunately, many veterans suffer from you know not only are they suffering from physical illnesses and ailments, but also suffering from psychiatric ailments. That study's ongoing, so I don't know how much I can say about it in, in terms of results. But, but what I can say is that um, I think more is, is, is well suited to address people with complex comorbidities because the, the techniques that we offer are not only alleviating physical pain, they're also alleviating emotional pain. And what we've seen in our studies with civilians we're seeing significant decreases in depression and significant decreases in post-traumatic stress symptoms, which we know are obviously really, it's a, it's a problem among people in the military and also veterans. And that, and to me, that's really fascinating that because in the more therapy itself, we don't necessarily have patients process or talk about their traumas. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not part of the, the treatment. But just it seems like just practicing these core therapeutic techniques of mindfulness, reappraisal, and savoring have some sort of uh, domain general kind of therapeutic effect. So there seems to be this kind of bleed over where those techniques are actually reducing PTSD, even though we're never even talking about PTSD symptoms. So that that's pretty exciting to me that you can have this kind of you can give this kind of general therapy, but then it has the these, this wide network of effects, whether it's alleviating physical pain, alleviating emotional pain, or reducing addictive behavior. 
Um, I want to ask you when you started getting interested in this area. I mean, I was I was reading, uh, I think, your website and talking about your training, and and you did um, a pre and postdoc fellowship in integrative medicine through the NIH at UNC. Can you talk to us a little bit about about that and uh, you know what that meant and what made you decide to do a fellowship in integrative medicine? A postdoc yeah, in integrated uh, medicine. Uh, the first thing I'll say is, is I'm definitely a weird social worker. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so many I, of us are weird. <laughs> I, I guess. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you this story, and may, you may find it useful uh, for this podcast. So, when I I had been practicing as a as a licensed clinical social worker, I had been doing uh, mindfulness based therapies with my patients as well as cognitive behavioral therapy and clinical hypnosis. And I'm, I'm an approved consultant in clinical hypnosis from the American society for clinical hypnosis. So that was a big part of my therapeutic approach. Um, I, I wanted, I decided I want to go back to grad school to get a PhD in social work. And I, but I, I wanted to go back to study hypnosis. And I went to UNC to study hypnosis with a prominent uh, GI group that was studying hypnosis as a, a treatment for um, irritable bowel syndrome. And and when I when I got there, unfortunately, the person I was supposed to work with wasn't able to work with me because um, his grants had run out, and he was now under a lot of pressure to to get another grant. So he didn't have time to take on a grad student. But he did connect me with the UNC program in integrative medicine, uh, where they were conducting an NIH-funded trial of mindfulness as a treatment for irritable bowel syndrome. And that was the PI of that was Susan Gaylord, who is one of my mentors and just a, a great person and a key figure in integrative medicine in this country. And uh, so I, I approached her, and they, and they graciously took me in as a predoctoral fellow. And that was really important it was an important part of my training because I, I learned how to apply rigorous clinical trial methodology to testing integrative health interventions and specifically to mindfulness and, and the, the kind of research design issues that uh, we tangled with there that really taught me about how to conduct a good rigorous clinical trial of a mindfulness based therapy. And I, I'm still basically using that same general clinical trial structure and all the research that I've done since. So it was great. It was, it was really a good place to, uh, to cut my teeth. And, and well-designed clinical trials are really fundamental to us making progress in this field. I mean, I think that's um, great how you've conducted uh, really well-designed trials that have had an impact. Um, you know, speaking of the NIH, you're involved in the NIH HEAL uh, initiative, right? What is that? Yes. That is the nation's $1 billion initiative to fund science that is going to help solve the opioid crisis. So it, it's really roughly split into two foci. One is using, is using research to develop treatments for opioid misuse and addiction. And the other angle is using science to develop treatments to address pain. And there's a recognition that these two things are interconnected. And so I was appointed by Francis Collins, who's the director of NIH, and Nora Volkoff, who's the director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, to serve on this committee. 
And I guess I'm the mindfulness guy <laughs> for this committee, which is pretty, I mean, it's, it's quite, quite an honor. Um, it's a, it's a 16 member, uh, work group, uh, comprised of people from a wide range of fields from medicine to, to, uh, neuroscience to, to social work. And I'm the, I'm the, I'm the lone social worker. Um, actually, I believe there's someone else with MW, but, uh, it's, it's a pretty eclectic group and a bunch of, and a, a bunch of brilliant minds. And I feel lucky to be a part of it. I mean, how much, I don't know if how much you could talk about this, but how many of uh, the things you guys are discussing in this initiative would we consider part of integrative medicine? I mean, do they talk about cannabis and how that could reduce opioid use or we acupuncture? We talked or about else? cannabis, but they, there's no cannabis-related funding, although I, I think there is, I think there may be some cannabinoid uh, molecule studies, but not cannabis itself. But don't quote me on that. I, I'm not, I'm not too clear on that one but there i would say that integrative medicine represents a a good chunk of the of the research funding that's been devoted to solve these issues and a, lo a lot of that actually is funding for interventions like mindfulness or yoga mm -hmm. but there's also support for other techniques like virtual reality and i do believe that i do believe acupuncture has been supported as well so it's great that it's great and, that NIH, the NIH Heal Initiative, has integrative medicine at the table as a key, as a key component, and um, you know the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health is well represented at these meetings, and I'm also happy to to support the cause. I mean, how long has has this been going on, and how long will it continue? Uh, it's been going on for for a couple of years, and we so the the, the multidisciplinary working group meets. Uh, about twice a year to to discuss the overall funding portfolio and to provide input about you know fruitful directions to take in terms of how to use the money wisely, um, identification of meritorious ideas, and and to help guide the initiative. So we actually have a meeting coming up in uh, in about a week or so. That's great. Gives me hope. Gives me hope. Um, I wanted to ask you one uh, last question, and that is for those people who have conditions that are very difficult for us to fix or for them to fix, like, you know, some people's lives feel like they may be out of control where they have uh, the things I see that I'm thinking of is when uh, when people have fin financial stress. Um, you know, I, I have patients who have these really awful situations where while they're getting diagnosed with cancer, obviously they get hit with the, the bill mm. that, that comes in from deductibles. Yeah. And then on top of it, they're getting divorced mm. or on top of it, they don't have a place to live. And, um, I, you know, unfortunately this happens, Definitely, you know, or somebody's getting abused. And sometimes I've even seen people who get abused after they got diagnosed from cancer because their, their, uh, partner can't, can't handle oh. it or, uh, or reacts in a very negative way. I mean, I guess you know how sometimes it feels like things are just overwhelming, even as a as a clinician. And I can only imagine as the person going through that that it can feel overwhelming. And sometimes it's difficult to kind of say, well, I think you can still, you know, try to be resilient and let's let's practice mindfulness and 
it's difficult to even talk about it sometimes where you're saying, you know, just let's kind of focus on the moment and let's not think about all these things. Let's focus on your re- response. I mean, how do you deal with these very difficult situations? Oh, you save the save the easiest question for last, huh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. Well, what I what I'd say about that is that mindfulness gives us uh, a basic a basic foundation or basic platform with which we can navigate life, the ups and the downs, and it's not necessarily a quick fix. You know, I, like I talked about, there are some people in the first session who have this great response, but there are a lot of people who don't. And it, it's, not, it's not a magic bullet or a panacea, but it is a way to, gra- to grab a hold of yourself in the middle of the storm and to try to find the center in the middle of the, of the cyclone. And... And it, it, what it brings me back to is a, is a core concept that, that comes out of Zen Buddhism, which is actually the, the word for meditation is translated as just sitting. And that's not a coincidence because what, they, what they're really saying there is that the moment that you choose to sit in the middle of, of the storm, in the middle of your discomfort and practice mindfulness, that is mindfulness. That is the moment. So you can't, you're not going to do it wrong. There's nowhere to go, nothing else to achieve. Just the gesture of saying, I'm going to sit upright with a straight back and hold my head high in the middle of the chaos of my life. That is the moment of, of mindfulness. That is the moment of awakening. And so I, lo- I always love that concept and, and I use it to help patients because, uh, you know, many, many people expect that they're going to just achieve some magical immediate relief and, and instead their mind is racing full of thoughts about all the stressors in their life and they're experiencing anguish and they think, you know, I'm not doing this right. This isn't working for me. But, but to the contrary, I think there, I think there's something really ther- therapeutic about saying, I'm going to take this, these few moments to myself to center myself, regardless of the, of the outcome. I'm just going to do this because this is a way for me to take care of myself and to just sit with in the middle of, of, of everything that's difficult and, and sit with awareness and, and presence. And that is, that is therapeutic. That is healing whether you know it or not, whether it makes you feel immediately better in that moment, or maybe it's going to take, you know, 10 more moments or a hundred more moments or a thousand more moments of sitting, it is helping you. And, uh, and, and so I think that's the message that I'd like to give people is, is, uh, that just making that gesture is, is, is the beginning of your path towards, um, helping yourself recover from whatever you're facing. Right. And that kind of pain that people are feeling is much more complex than than you can just fix with just prescribing opioids, which, you know, I think that, you know, your technique and other mindfulness techniques are, are kind of, you know, establishing some kind of basis for, for dealing with more complex pain that only somebody's own acknowledgement and, you know, resilience can help work towards. 
Um, so I really appreciate everything you've said and uh, everything you're doing. Um, you know, just it's it's amazing what kind of impact you're having uh, really on a national level and, it, you know, continuing this great, great work. So I just uh, true respect for everything you've accomplished so far and everything you're still working on um, right now. And I'm going to look into more um, and see if we can start implementing it somehow at, at our uh, integrative center as well. That's fantastic. And thanks so much, Santos. Great, great, great interview and happy to be your colleague. Thank you. You take care. You too. You too.